Hi, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Don't forget that the event company like Najahi brings in Tony Robbins, Oprah Winfrey. She's coming. I shouldn't have told you that, but anyway, you got it now. Okay, she's coming in the new year. We've got other famous people that Najahi Events are bringing in next year. So check them out, okay, and make sure that you register for anything that is relevant to you. On today's episode of the podcast, I've got the incredible, and oh my God, I think I've met my twin sister from another mister. Um, today, North Swede. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to join us. Thank you for having me. Spencer. It's going to be fun, okay? You're going to enjoy this because we're going to learn a lot about her story. We're going to understand what she did to build her business. We're going to understand a lot about our businesses too because I'm going to throw in some questions there where we learn more and more about what you do if you're going to set a company up, when you when you raise finance for a company, when you sell your company. So there's lots of juicy stuff. So without further ado, cue the music. No, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you for having me. So you're a big fan of doing podcasts. It's uh, a media and you really enjoy social media like you've been telling me so far. Absolutely. I'm everywhere on Instagram and I'm on Facebook <laughs> and I never put them down except I'm, yeah, I stopped being on them a very long time ago. And also you're addicted to watching TV. So you spend a lot of time doing that every night. You go to the movies every other night as well. I used to and now I've gone back to reading, which is just, um, I guess, old fashioned of me, but I really enjoy reading books. Yeah, you said earlier on, you read a book every week. I try to read a book a week. Yeah. That's nuts. They um, say they say that all the top CEOs in the world read a book a book a week. Do they? I they, didn't know that. I thought they read more. Oh, did you? Yes, but I don't know. Um, no, uh, so I just do a book a week. Just. Yeah. Do you speed read? Um, I don't know what the definition of speed reading versus reading quickly is. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the difference is. I just read at the pace at which I'm comfortable reading, and depending on the content and the type of book, some I read more quickly, some I read more slowly. I generally tend to do much better with books with pictures in. <laughs> that's that's great <laughs> yeah no those i tend to read with my children <laughs> so you are uh, a partner at global ventures yes it's a company that you founded yes it's and, a venture capital firm and how long ago did that happen um january 2018 okay so that's fairly new yes so take me back a bit further because you've got quite an interesting story to tell and i heard it when i was at the capital club with you recently uh, and it really interested me to see what happened when you didn't want to live in Dubai. Yeah, obviously your husband then got offered a job over here. Yeah, so I moved here when I was 15 um, with my family. So that wasn't a non-option when you're 15. You just kind of move where your parents tell you to move to. Um, and then I left a few years later for college. And Dubai in 1995 was very different to Dubai today. Um, so when I went away, I went to Boston to study and I worked for a few years. I did my MBA. And um, my recollection of Dubai was 1995 Dubai, although I kept coming and going. But... Boston just seemed to be a much busier place with a lot more happening. Um, While I was doing my MBA, I met my husband, and um, we graduated in 2005, and his job offer was here with McKinsey, and I had a job offer here with Booz Allen, and it happened to be that they're both in Dubai, and everything else seemed to to take us to different cities. Um, So we moved back to Dubai in 2005, and it was a very different Dubai than what I originally remembered, but it was still a very different Dubai to today, because 14 years ago, it was just a different city. Um, yeah, but it was not in my plans. So you came in 2005 after being in the States for a while. Yes. I came in 2005, so yeah. I remember. 
Yeah. Where did you live when you first came here? What part of town? Um, we lived on Sheikh Zayedur. There was a new building called Falcon Tower. Okay. And there, yeah, was, noth- Falcon yeah, there was nothing around it at the time. We literally had to like, um, drive through desert to get there. Um, yeah, so we lived there. Okay. So I remember it very much. I have such great memories of what it once was. In know, 2005? With it, with the Imagine 1995. Yeah. Where the Hard Rock Cafe further. was like in the middle of nowhere. Crazy. And so you'd drive and then you drive past desert, desert, and then there would be this like hard rock cafe that's just like sprouts out in the middle of the desert. I um, remember coming here in 1999 and I was on a course and I stayed at the Ridges Plaza Hotel, which is down near Satwa. And then uh, one of my colleagues, he said to me, come, we'll go for a drive. And we drove and he took me past this brand new building that had just been built called the Messiah Center. Remember the Messiah Center? <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, you that know, or it, we used to it? hang out in Hodeir, or we used to hang out in Burjuman. That was new when we moved here. Um, yeah, it was a big deal when City Centre Dera opened. So it's, it's nuts um, how this city's grown, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's absolutely amazing yeah. how it's been built over time. So tell me about what happened. You, you, you came back here, you had an opportunity to work with Booze, was it? Yes. Okay, so Booze, McKinsey, Boston, these are the, the, the big account, uh, um, consultancy firms. Right. Did you get indoctrinated into that kind of uh, workaholic way of life where lots of these young consultants seem to? Um, I don't think that's optional. So I think when you work for these firms and you're expected to put in the hours and you're traveling all the time, um, you, you just go with the flow and that's the flow. And I think when you're young and you're trying to prove yourself and pay your dues, um, that that's just the way that it's done. Um, I took a little pause to, to work with my father in his company. Uh, he was building a business at the time and it was, he started it in 1996. It was in the interior contracting space. Um, so I took a pause to help him for a little bit, and that turned into a much longer journey. So a few weeks turned to a few months, turned to eight years. And in that process, we built um, the largest interior company in the world. Um, I was fortunate enough to IPO that in April 2008, just before the global financial crisis. Um, we listed on the NASDAQ Dubai and on the LSE um, and at the time we were in 22 countries. So we were based in Dubai. And when I joined in 05, it was in six markets. By 2008, it had grown much larger. Um, Singapore became our marquee market, so did India. And really working with hotels and infrastructure projects globally um, to execute the interior design. So to take a building that just is cement and steel and to do everything on the inside. Um, and in Dubai, those projects include Burj Khalifa, the airport, Burj Al Arab, um, you know, and of course, oh, just the board, a couple of yeah, just a couple. I can't remember Emirates the names Palace. of them. Just a, Emirates Palace as well. <laughs> yeah, Emirates Burj Palace. Khalifa, the airport, Emirates Palace, Burj Al Arab. Yeah, the six hotels on Yas Island. Um, so, so mm. we've we've done a lot in the region, um, and then in India, for example, the Mumbai Airport, the Four Seasons across the board, the Leelas in Singapore, the Marina Bay Sands in Azerbaijan, the Baku Flame Tower. So kind of marquee projects around the world. And they are properly um, iconic yeah, developments, so a, aren't they? It was, it was really fun to help build that out, um, to IPO that in 08, and then um, stay on board until 2013, where we handed over to um, you know an outside professional CEO, implemented succession planning, which most people do succession planning, but never the implementation of. Um, the company's still public. It's fantastic. It's six years later, and it's still a public company that's run and still one of the largest in the world in its space. Take me back to the I, the IPO. You, first of all, Dad's asked you to come and get involved and, and, and work with the business. Why? You've got brothers and sisters. Why didn't he ask them? Um, He'd brought on board some consultants that were doing a reorg, 
And I was a consultant and him and the consultants, um, you know, had different opinions. And so he wanted my opinion. And so I'm a consultant, they're consultants. You know, you could speak to them in their language mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it was, and my, my siblings were still away at college and doing master's programs at the time as well. Okay. And was it, because um, if I think about my parents, my parents are divorced and my mum and dad both remarried when I was young. My, my mum would absolutely lean on my advice and my opinion. Mm. My dad, I'm not sure he would. So that's a gender so, thing. So there are studies about this. Oh, really? Yes. So family businesses that go from patriarch to a female, like a daughter or a niece or whatever, have a much higher chance of success in terms of the relationship as well as longevity of the business and the growth of the business than ones that go from father to son. That's really fascinating. Yeah. So I think NCAD's done some case studies on this. And there's like data and research um, that Harvard's done around kind of father to daughter versus father to son. And what was it like working with dad? It was fun. Um, After getting to know you a little bit today, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should be asking you dad. <laughs> um, it, we're very similar in terms of personalities. <laughs> really? Yeah. So um, so at one point it was it would be quite funny because... We could almost read each, read each other's minds and we'd be in a meeting and I'd know exactly what he's thinking and he'd know exactly that I knew what he was thinking and my response to that. And we could go back and forth a few times and people would just be like, this is just insane. Um, you know, and sometimes he'd be traveling for work and people would come to me and be like, okay, so we need to make a decision. What would your father say? And whatever I'd say is exactly what he would have said and, and vice versa. So we're very, very similar in terms of kind of our temperament and our outlook and, you know, our focus on really creating job growth, creating opportunity and creating something that outlives you. You know, legacy is what you leave behind, but you can do that when you're still here, right? So building a company that outlives you is much more of a success than building a company that needs you to stay. You, had your dad had any experience with IPOs previously? No. Had you? No, so when I proposed- Was it scary? um, No, because I was 28 and naive. So I think if you if you told me today to go run an IPO, I'd be like, oh, yeah. that's a lot of work. And the, the regulatory compliance around that is difficult. And, you know, at the time when you're 28 and you think you're invincible, you're like, oh, I can run an IPO. Sure. Why not? So we brought Morgan Stanley and UBS on board as the bankers and we got the right lawyers and I read up about it. And then we needed to hire someone to do regulatory compliance and governance. And there was no one in Dubai that could do that. So then I said, OK, I'll do that. And I just learned about it and did that. So you just get on with it when you're when you want to achieve something and you're that young and you have no idea how hard it's supposed to be. Right. I think so that I th- naivety really worked in your favor. Of course. Yeah. Just like now. So I started building out this VC firm. Everyone's like, it's the hardest thing you're gonna do. Raising a fund one is almost impossible. And for the region, it's even harder. And and you're a female and there are no proper female fund managers here and no one's in finance. And and it's like, yeah, okay, that's great. Right. Now I look back. If I had known how hard it was gonna be, I may not have done it. Right. So it's um it's back to like naivety playing off and that if you haven't done something um you know sometimes you have no idea how hard it might be yeah absolutely so what what made you want to set this business up the, you know where did where did the idea come from why not why not there's been an ipo surely everyone did okay out of the ipo i know that i've got to know you a little bit today and i know you're a busy kind of character so why not go in and do something else why not set a different type of business up um so it goes back to my experience as an entrepreneur. So while I was working in family business for those eight years, I also set up my own company by accident. Um, so I moved back to Dubai in 2005, as I said, and um, I found nowhere to practice yoga, which seems like such a banal problem. But I had become a big yogi, and it was very important for me personally. 
Um, and so I decided to set up a yoga studio, not realizing that there would be no teachers because obviously there were no studios. Um, again, back to naivety. And so at the time I was 25 and thought, okay, well, you know, I'll just bring my two favorite teachers from Boston. So I did that. Um, and then slowly that became the, a chain of yoga studios, um, one of the larger chains in the region. Um, and we all, all ended up at 6,000 students a month, 72 full-time teachers, five locations. Um, and every time I'd walk in, it was a business problem. So I couldn't practice yoga there anymore. So it kind of started defeating the purpose. Um, and so that, you know, I ultimately sold it to a private equity firm. As you do. So I, again, I, we have no attachment to businesses. Um, you know, you build a business for the sake of solving a problem. And the problem at the time was that there was no yoga. Um, so we solved the problem, but it was so hard. So I was doing this at the same time as I was part of um, managing a billion dollar company and realized that it was just much, much harder to run the small business than to manage a billion dollar company. And so I started thinking, well, this can't be right. So got more into helping other people start their companies, mentoring, advising, being very fortunate to work with some amazing entrepreneurs, um, angel investing. And, you know, and this was all at the same time. And as time uh, progressed, started realizing that a lot of my little small angel investments needed more and more capital, and I wasn't that scalable. So got to a point in my life where, as an entrepreneur, I try to solve the biggest problem I can find that speaks to me, um, and that I actually think I have a chance of helping to just like move the needle a little bit on the solution. And right now, that problem that I believe in our ecosystem is access to capital for founders. So I think as founders start to scale, we have incredible talent in the region. There's an opportunity to create so many companies. You know, our family business was one of many stories and one of many more potential stories. But both Zen Yoga and Depa would have never scaled um, into the success stories that they were without the capital to enable both to grow um, and to create those jobs and to really speak to the ecosystem. And so when we look at this, it's okay, well, access to capital is paramount to growth the best talent, the best strategies, the best ideas, no capital. You might grow, but very slowly. The right capital puts you in an advantage and enables you to capture more market and really grow your company and create more jobs at the same time. So that's kind of where it came in. It was literally because as the companies that I had invested in scaled, they found capital elsewhere and they would move. And you know that was just not a good solution in my opinion. So mm. trying to fix the access to capital for founders problem is why I got into venture. It was by accident. It was you not, do I like didn't, a challenge, don't you? Um, I like to feel that you know the time I'm spending is purposeful. Makes sense. So since that business started, which is fairly recent, how many companies have you helped? So we've invested in seven companies. Of the seven, um, six have gone into international markets since our investment. And so the, the fund thesis is quite straightforward. Um, it's companies that are on the growth curve. They're not very early stage. So at least a million dollars in revenue, um, five corporate clients. So we focus on the B2B side of things, so enterprise technologies, um, and scaling preferably with um, global competitiveness or solving a problem beyond MENA borders. So we invest in the region and companies that have the propensity to scale globally. Okay. And can we, can we, cause I remember there was a PowerPoint slide that you had up. Is there any companies that we can talk about? We can talk about all of them. Oh, okay. I'm over here. Yeah. I don't want to make sure. They're all fantastic. They're on our website. Yeah. Okay. Fine. I just want to make sure that. I'm Which one do you want to talk about? So you've got Mum's World. Yes. You've got, just go through them. Mum's, Mum's World. World. 
Arrow Labs. Arrow Labs. CDP. Holiday Me. Um, Kitopi. Lunch On and Flora Now. Okay, so let's take Lunch On and let's take Mum's World. Okay. Start with Mum's World. Okay. Tell me the journey. Her journey started in 2012. What's uh, her name again? Mona. Mona. Okay. My you, business partner, Daniel, knows that they're friends. <laughs> they're fantastic. Um, so she started in 2012 building this out because she saw, again, a gap in the market. <clears throat> so I think every entrepreneur tries to solve a problem that they believe is worth solving. Um, and she's scaled. I think now she's... Um, They have 2.4 million community members on the platform. Mm -hmm. So mothers that are actively engaged, they have distribution rights for many of the products across the region, which is why it is B2B as much as B2C. Mm -hmm. um, we see the B2C angle as consumers. We order things for our children and, and so on. Um, and she scaled from Dubai into six or seven markets in the region. She also delivers to many, many more markets across kind of Africa and even Europe to some degree. Um, so we've seen that business grow. It's now a few hundred people. Um, it, I'm not gonna, you know, divulge numbers, but sure, but yeah, um, but yeah, but it's they're doing thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of deliveries a day. So it's it's a very very strong business. And what made you want to get involved in it was that was that when you, whenever you what are the, what are the top five things that you look at? What are the most important things you look at? One is. How often a founder actually delivers what they said they're going to deliver. So we work with founders across at least a few months. They say they're going to do X, and then they do X, and then they say they're going to do Y, and they do Y. Like, okay, these people actually know what they're planning and know what they're executing and have the ability to communicate that accurately. Um, so that's fundamental. And then for companies that are expanding across the region, it should be in a white space. So who is the largest? Who's the biggest? Um, who has the highest chance of success? And how can we support them? And then um, the ability to add value. So how can we actually support this person beyond capital? Are there introductions we can make? Is there revenue we can help grow? Is it strategic? Is it follow-on funding for more internationals? And so on. Um, so those are you know, the, the main things that we look at. Okay. The other company? Lunch on. Yeah. Um, it, lunch that sounds on. like a last mile type business. No, it's a food business. I love food tech. The region's just way ahead of the curve in terms of Is like... Is this cloud food. kitchen tech? No, that's Ketopi. Okay, so we've sorry. done Ketopi as yeah. well. We did that about a year and a bit ago. Um, so lunch on. lunch on is an awesome company. It um, does food at work. So it solves the problem of lunchtime. So most corporates that have north of 30 employees end up having to deal with the lunchtime problem, which is everyone orders randomly, food comes in drips and drabs. Um, sometimes the, you know, the, the employees spend you know, from 11 a.m. until 12 o'clock deciding what they want to eat, and then it comes at one o'clock. And so there's, it's just not fun for anyone. And it's expensive. If you're ordering from delivery, it's 45 dirhams. If, you know, usually people's budget for lunch is about 25 dirhams. Um, and so they said, okay, we can solve this for every, all the stakeholders involved. So what they propose is a solution where as a corporate, you sign on, which costs you nothing. You simply activate. And then anyone who has an email address with your domain um, can register and subscribe. So the employee then has to go and subscribe. And what they pay is 39 dirhams a month. Um, and what they get for that is access to the platform. And the platform is that every morning before 11 a.m. Or, or 10 a.m., depending on where the corporate location is, They go onto the platform and they get to choose lunch from three different restaurants. Mm -hmm. Each restaurant puts three to five menu items on there, set at 25 dirhams. 
Whereas, and there's 300 restaurants on the platform, so every day it's different. It's a different set of choices. All the food arrives at the same time. So for the employee, it's the same meal you might get at Wagamama for a very different price, but you're getting on the platform for 25 dirhams or Nando's and so on. So it's within your budget for lunch. Mm -hmm. You've decided by the morning. You can decide for the entire week if you'd like. Okay. Right. So it solves the problem of what, when, and then all the food arrives at the same time. So eating at the same time as your colleagues. Mm -hmm. For the corporate, they can sponsor it. So some corporates say, okay, we've got this. Instead of building out a cafeteria, mm -hmm. it also means that your employees have figured out what they want to yeah. eat in the morning. So the hassle of the kitchen and the drama that goes with keeping it clean. And exactly. And for the restaurants, it's, it's their yeah. downtime. So the restaurants often between 10 a.m. and noon yeah. have a lot of downtime. They can actually prep the food and they're sending multiple of the same to the same location. Yeah. So it's a win-win-win across the board. So they've grown about eight-fold between last year and this year. And again, you know, our value add is introducing them to potential corporates that can become clients, as well as you know, thinking through their global expansion and their growth, um, and helping them build their teams. How many companies do you say no to for everyone you say yes to? We get about twenty companies a week inbound. Shut up! Really? Yeah. the The region is highly undercapitalized in venture capital. Twenty companies yes. a week. <laughs> yeah. So we're averaging about 20 companies a week now. Not all of them qualify. Some are much earlier, earlier stage. Some are very consumer tech. Some are, right. Um, but how, I mean, you, literally, we have 20 a, a week. Yeah, sure. But I mean, it's, I'm it's sure it's like, it's like a resume. You look at the first few things and you're eliminating some very exactly. quickly. But there's others that you have to dig a lot exactly. deeper into, yeah? Yeah. Um, and when you find that one, then you put everything behind it to go and find the capital to take them in. The we have the capital as a fund. So we raised a fund. Are so you, we, you've already raised We have it. discretion, yeah. Okay. Um, and where are those investors from? Our fund investors? Mm. Mainly from the US. Oh, really? Yeah. So we have some regional investors. We just had two regional um, sovereigns um, come in. So And we closed the fund on November 23rd, so in 10 days. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And tell me, do you, do you help the companies then exit as well? That's our job. Okay, you're going to help them do that. Yes. So mum's well when she's ready to go. Yes. Okay, and does she have to agree with that? You agree that in advance when it's going to be? No, not in advance, but she has to agree at the time. It's her company. Oh, no, I understand, yeah. yeah. And I talked to you earlier about my business. And mm. I talked to you about Danielle, my business partner, and the different ways that we both look at the business. She's put her heart and soul into it, and, and I'm somewhat hands-off to some degree. And you described it as her baby. Do you find that a lot with people that are, have worked hard to build businesses that their perception of its value and, and the, the journey that it's going to go on is somewhat different to yours? I think that's, um, it varies from person to person. Okay. So I think that a lot of people get attached to their companies, um, partly because it's their company, partly because they define by themselves by the company. Right. Um, I've been fortunate in the in my journey. You know, I worked as in biotech um, in the U.S. to start, and then I was in family business as an entrepreneur in the yoga space. You know, I ended up um, serving in government here for a while at the Dubai Future Foundation. Now I'm a VC, so my identity is not attached to my career. For many people who have been doing something for a much longer period of time, and it's one thing and one thing only, their identity becomes attached to their career, um, and that's often why people have a really hard time separating. Um, and even then, you know, I, I genuinely believe most people have a number, but those whose identity are very, very attached to their career or the business they're building, they're, they don't have a number because it's like trying to set a number on your identity, which is really, really hard to do. <laughs> so it's, um, but I think that the, the new trend of companies over the last 10 years that we've seen the tech companies and 
a lot of people build with an exit in mind, mm-hmm. right? So, so they're trying <clears throat> to build something in order to exit and create a lot of money, mm-hmm. right? So very rarely do we come across founders who are building something that they're properly passionate about, um, where it speaks to them from their kind of heart and soul. Most are building something they're really good at that the market needs. They're solving a problem we're solving. It's a massive opportunity. They care very deeply for it. They're trying to build a great corporate culture, right? Um, but you know, if tomorrow you said that, you know, maybe not Google, but you know, SAP wants to come and buy your company, and here's you know a couple hundred million dollars, most would probably take it. Yeah, I agree with you. the The term VC is seen by some as a it's evil. Yeah. <laughs> he said it. <laughs> um, it's like it's kind of like uh, well, angel investors good and and <clears throat> you know getting involved in that. You know we we can we can do that, but whatever you do, don't go to the VCs because they're gonna try and rape and pillage through your business. Is is what you hear quite a lot of, and then there must be some people in <coughs> in the past that have been a little bit like that. But um, VCs shouldn't be the place that most of those 20 uh, opportunities a week come to. There should be somewhere else before for some of them, do you think? Angel investors are good. Um, I think VCs are not for most companies. And so, you know, I had someone ask me recently, one of the founders that we ended up investing in, they're like, why would one company, why, why do I think one company would qualify for VC funding whereas another doesn't? And the best way to simplify it is for every dollar or dirham that we invest in a company, how many dollars or dirhams in revenue will that generate? And how much of that is driven by the tech, therefore scalable, versus more boots on the ground? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's when you know, do you have a tech company or do you have a logistics company? Do you have a tech company or do you have an education company? Mm-hmm. Do you have so it's like we have ed tech and logistics tech and you know and like, okay but how many people do you have in tech versus on the ground? Um, and so for me, venture capital is really for those companies that are massively scalable via their technology platforms, mm-hmm. rather than um, we need money to put more boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the definition. I also think that in the region. Um, and in general at large, but in the region, we still have a lot of first-time founders who are unfamiliar with um, the normal terms of raising money mm-hmm. and so can get taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And I think the same was true 10 years ago, maybe in the U.S., which is why VC got its bad name. You know, but you look 10 years before that, it was hedge fund guys and before that, it was investment bankers. And mm-hmm. So anyone in finance is evil, apparently. Um, <laughs> and that's just... Um, I come from a finance background, so I get that. So, so you're also yeah, yeah, evil. I, get, um, I, mean, I was evil, but we're the good evil people. I think I was uh, evil when I came out of the womb. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what? So, it, <clears throat> there's people listening to this right now. What can they expect? Okay, it's a, a business like yours, and we won't say yours, but what can they expect on average? Okay, to have to sacrifice or pay for the benefit of working with somebody raising capital for them. Raising capital for them. Uh, raising capital or investing in them. Investing in them. Um, so the rule of thumb. Let's say there's a value. There's a value of a hundred dollars yeah. to the business. And so they, the rule and of thumb is ten dollars. Yeah. So the rule of thumb is no, no. Yes, yes, no. Um, so the rule of thumb is twenty percent dilution per round, 
So when you go out and you raise your seed round, you're, you know, you want to raise 20 to 25% um, dilution. You need to figure out what that is. And then the next round is the same and the next round is the same. Where we work a lot with our founders is, okay, well, how much capital do you need to get to your next round? Which means, where do you want your business to be you know, in your next round? So when you go out and you raise the next stage of funding, what does that look like? How many people? What's your revenue? What are your geographies? Are you profitable? If not, what's your path to profit- profitability? And so on. So once you can define that's what we want it to look like, then you can say this is how much capital it's going to take to get there. right? Then you can say, okay, so in theory, that's what we need to raise. Does that then jive with where we are now in terms of valuation? Mm-hmm. And if not, then you need to build your business further to get to the valuation that you need to be at. And a lot of those businesses, they will be like, yeah, we, okay, fine, we understand that, but we can't really build much further until we get a bit of cash. So what do you suggest? Um, so part of it is, you know, convertible debt. Yep. Which, you know, is mm-hmm. is like equity, but converts at the next round so that way no one has to price the company right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say bank loans, but those are really hard to come by in the region if you're not profitable yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say... Honestly, the best companies and founders we've seen have just bootstrapped. So that there is no equivalent to that. Um, and what we see in the region is really incredible talent um, that can build a product that can. You build mean like a founders company. that have put their life savings into it yes. and and sacrificed a whole load of stuff and and a year and a half of their life and built something and have you know four clients and a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue and. You know, they're they're they know they have something. You know, they have something, um, but they have something. They're not coming with a business plan. If you haven't invested in a company and they want to, they want to somebody wants to sell their business, do you help facilitate that? No. So you only invest, raise the finance. Okay. Before. Unfortunately, time is limited, mm-hmm. and time is our biggest asset. So if we're helping someone that's not in our portfolio, that's just not good fiduciary responsibility for our investors. And with seven companies that you're supporting at the moment, uh, how many can you cope with? The portfolio will ultimately sit about 15 to 16 companies. Okay. And so you're actively looking for the right companies. Yeah. And so how how often, and and be honest, how often do you get excited about something? How often does that happen? Once a month. Does it? And then once a month? You're like, I've got one, I've got one. I mean, and sometimes we think we do, and then we run diligence, and uh, we're like, oh, never mind. And that's unfortunate, but, you know, you're better off, you know, n- missing a good deal than doing a bad one. I'm a young guy. I'm leaving university. I'm getting some experience in the world, but I've heard there's a load of money working as a VC. I'm a young girl leaving university. Yeah. Um, I've gone and got myself a job. I've got a decent degree. I don't have a PhD or anything, but I've got myself a decent degree. I've proved I can work hard and study. And uh, that, that that sounds really sexy. I know that everyone says VC is evil, but no, I don't care about that. It sounds sexy. It, sounds... it does sound sexy. Lots so, of people want to do VC. It's like one of the most like highly ranked things that people want to do out of college. So do I get paid loads of money for being in the VC? Room? No, you get paid peanuts. Um, and, and, I, and I say that very honestly. <laughs> For all of you people um, listening or watching right now. <laughs> um, so, Shattered. <laughs> so, so, you know, just the same way as the best consulting firms pay less than the average ones, you know, the, the more sexiness there is to the job and the more kind of attractiveness there is to the job, 
the less the job pays. It's everywhere in the world. Because lots of people want Because lots job. of people want, it's a demand and supply curve. So, right? we, so we so, get CV, we get incoming CVs, we get about five a week. Um, do you right? look at them? We don't have any open positions. Okay, so they just come so, through. So they just come through. So one day when we're looking, we'll probably go back to them. A lot of our portfolio companies are looking for people, so we give them access to that database of CVs. Um, our investors are sometimes looking to staff up their investment team, so they have access to that database of CVs. So, so let's say I haven't heard the news about being paid peanuts, and it's an industry I want to get into. Mm -hmm. Where do I start? You start by going and working in a company. So we won't hire anyone that doesn't have operating experience. So, because otherwise, how are you supposed to know how to help a founder? What about if somebody said to you, they came to you and said, look, I'll work for free. Then they can come work for free. Okay, I work for free. I'm, I'm happy, no, I'm happy no, to- No expectations. We've had four people come and intern for free and learn and be around it and kind of see what it's actually like. And mm -hmm. things are always much more shiny on the outside, right? So once you get yeah. in, you're like, oh, this is it? The sick of making uh, you coffee. Exactly. No, no. <laughs> copy this. Not at all. <laughs> There's no such thing anymore, right? So, so. And the coffee comes to you these days. So, so it's very different. <laughs> Um, no, I think that they realize that it's still a lot of financial analysis. It's a lot of due diligence work. It's a lot about asking the right questions. But how are you supposed to know what the right questions to ask are unless you've actually worked in a company and operated a company and have a strong skill set? So I think what VC is, it's a combination of everything. It's a combination of investment background. It's a combination of, you know, can you build an Excel model? Can you also build a PowerPoint deck? Can you then sit with the founder and find out what their operating challenges are and help them think through what's important because as founders, they're too busy dealing with what's urgent every day, mm -hmm. right? And so you really need a strategic mindset, but the operating skill set. Um, and you put those together and that's how VCs can be valuable to founders. Otherwise, it's just capital. Mm. Right. And, you know, and that's not as valuable. And if you're deploying capital without adding value, then um, that's not really a smart thing to do. Mm. So we have, you know, an analyst who's right out of college, um, right, who's fantastic um, and does a lot of our social media and digital marketing and learns a lot by being with us um, and kind of makes sure that our portfolio companies have everything they need on the social media and digital marketing side because they can't afford to have their own person focused on that. Um, and then we have an associate who was with Deutsche Bank for five years in New York and has that skill set, um, but originally from the region, so came back and it does a lot of the financial analysis and has learned over the last year and two months kind of about everything else. Um, but then the senior people on the team all have operated companies as COOs, as CEOs, um, and have investment experience at the same time. So it's without the operating experience, it's really hard to add value to founders. What is the toughest part of doing what you do? Um, finding the right strategic capital for our fund. Okay, so getting the capital is the biggest challenge. Yeah. And why? Um, because historically venture capital firms um, have raised 70% of first-time funds from pensions and endowments across the world. Um, that hasn't been the case in the region. But then you take a look, okay, well, can we bring in foreign capital? Um, and then the foreign capital doesn't really understand the region. And when they do, it's with a foreign news lens on it. So it doesn't look very pretty. Um, but those are the industry experts that you really want on board. So that's what we did. So I discovered it was uh, much easier for us and much more valuable to our portfolio to raise capital from people who've done venture before in the US and China and India and understand VC ecosystems and how they grow 
and realize that we're at a very young ecosystem point and growing and there's an inflection point hopefully happening very soon. Um, and that to get their buy-in is instrumental to our founders because then they can actually give them advice and expertise as they grow. Your source of information and knowledge is incredibly valuable. You seem to me like you're somebody that is really committed to what you do. How do you find balance between being that kind of up to, up to your neck in the, the passion of that and being because uh, the audience won't know this, being the mother to three boys and, and obviously to be a, a good wife as well and all the stuff that goes with it. Is, it. is it a juggling act that you find challenging or is it something that actually you've got yourself into a, a structured rhythm and routine and it's all all right? There's no such thing as rhythm and routine. I think that especially when you have young children, um, you know, the only constant in life is change. And to me, if you embrace that and you genuinely believe that, then, you know, curveballs aren't curveballs, they're just today's path. So it's you can plan for X and guess what? The odds that that happens are so slim. <laughs> but at least you have a plan, so you have some sort of sanity in your mind. Um, you know, I think that the most important thing is being present. Um, and so I think that being present with the children when I'm with the children um, for three hours a day or whatever it is, is much more valuable than me being around for nine hours and present for nine minutes. Um, and I think at work, we live in a very fast-paced environment, not just venture, but all of the tech world and most of the world. And it's about moving things forward and getting things done and making decisions in a timely fashion the best you can with the information you have. Um, and then moving forward, right? So... I just think that life is very fast-paced if you want to be in the venture world. Um, you know, we take our time making decisions on investments, right? So we want to make sure that we're backing the right founders and the right teams and the right companies. Um, but when I'm with the team, I'm with the team. And when I'm with an investor, I'm with an investor. And when we're with the founders, we're with the founders. And 45 minutes being very present is better than three hours while I'm on my phone. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I think that um, removing the distraction and the noise of Instagram and Facebook and that mobile device um, and keeping that just far away from me when I'm at home, far away from me when I'm in meetings, um, makes me very hard to reach, I'm sometimes reminded, but enables me to be very effective at what I'm doing at that moment. Mm, I agree. So, so the only person that's not gonna be able to watch or listen to this podcast episode is you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Which, you know, as long as I'm helpful and I can add value, it's, coming it's on a, fine. It's coming on a link to an email to you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be making sure you get a link of it. Okay, before we finish, last question for you. Um, people want to engage with the VC firm. Now, I know, I know, so forgive me because you're getting 20 people applying every week. But give, give three top tips that you'd give people if they want to get your attention, okay? What have they got to make sure that their business has that's interesting for you? Um... Revenue traction. Okay. So our minimum threshold is usually about a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars a month. Um, the first question we ask founders is, "What's the problem you're solving?" Okay. Right. So they they have to be solving a problem, and um, globally scalable. So the problem you're solving and the traction you have on the revenues can that be applied across the world? Right, from Singapore to the U.S. to Europe. Um, and most of our founders in our portfolio, yes, it can. Is it, it, it is the Middle East 
scalable enough or does it have to be globally scalable? If it's Middle East, it needs to be a white space. Okay, understood. So let's just repeat that again. So they've got to be producing at least a million dollars worth of revenue a year. Yeah. Yeah? Okay, or $100,000 a month. They've got to be solving a problem. That's worth solving. Okay, that's worth solving. Okay, that's good. good. Really, <laughs> I said that's that. That's kind of like, <laughs> so, so important, yeah. Because otherwise, it's, you know, we, we don't want to be serving the 2%. Right? This is yeah. actually a problem that is Need solving. worth solving. Yeah. And a business that, that, that has the potential, even though it isn't right now, has the potential to be globally scalable. Yeah. And then there's your three three gold stars at the top, and that all of a sudden, nor nor we says, a look. We're going to go a bit deeper than just looking at the outline. Yeah, that's fantastic. Your knowledge is so valuable to a lot of people listening to this because a lot of people really just don't understand this world. And I know there's lots of businesses out there that don't know in which direction to head. They don't know whether they're doing the right thing. Also, know that there's lots of entrepreneurs out there that this word entrepreneur annoys me because it's it's a word that didn't exist when I grew up. Me neither. You know? It's a business and, person. Yeah, it's a business person, and and I think a lot of people think they're entrepreneurs when they run a business that is just them. And that, that to me, is, is a sole trader or a one-man band. That, that, or a business to me. owner. Yeah. And so having grand ideas, but not having the ability to be able to build and scale out your business, but by having loads of ownership around it and control and that kind of mindset of, like, it's mine is always something that I find really disappointing with a lot of people that could be so much more but can't see it for themselves. Yeah. Okay. Um, You've been on a few podcasts. Have I? <laughs> I've recorded a few. <laughs> did you did you enjoy sitting here talking to me on the show today? Of course, I always enjoy talking to you. Sure? Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that was okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really thank appreciate you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, well, hopefully, okay, we'll see you soon, either wakeboarding <laughs> or out doing some crazy activity at the crack of dawn. It'll be fun. <laughs> Thanks, Spencer. Okay, so there we have it, an awesome podcast. You want to know anything that there is to know about venture capital, raising finance for your business, and literally taking what you've got right now and taking it to where you really want to be, then this has been an epic, epic interview, learning about all of those things with Noor.